Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Last week, the Traveler took you on the road to Big Bend National Park in far west Texas. Lynn Riddick sat down with the park's chief of interpretation, Tom Vandenberg, to learn about the park's history and its geological and botanical treasures. This week, in part two from Big Ben, Lynn gives us a first-hand, more personal glimpse into this vast remote park with her companion, Mary Menster, as they clock nearly 1,100 miles to the park, through the park, and back home again. Following Lynn and Mary's great adventure, I'll share a short conversation I had with Charles Sams, the new director of the National Park Service. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Come along with me on a trip to Big Bend National Park in Southwest Texas, where 1,200 square miles of Chihuahuan Desert, Chisos Mountains, and colorful canyons carved by the Rio Grande are waiting to be explored. My traveling companion is Mary Menster. She's a former high school geography teacher who currently directs tours of the national parks and other scenic areas. We are driving to the park from San Antonio in front of us, 405 miles to the park entrance at Persimmon Gap. I think I brought everything. <laughs> that can go, that can go uh, in the front seat with me. Okay. Yeah, I'll put it right here. Okay. This one can go up front. This blue cooler can go close by because it has a lot of snacks in it. How does this compare with what you brought? Does it look like yeah, an equal amount? Yeah. Okay, good. I feel better. We decide to take a more direct highway route on the way there, and then on the return trip, the more scenic route that skirts along the Rio Grande and the border of Mexico. So, 
All right, just like that. Off we go. Off we go. Let the journey begin. My first and only trip to Big Bend was 30 years ago, but Mary is a seasoned visitor, having been to the park about 10 times. The park has so many different areas. It's, you know, it's, you're in one area and it's just wide open desert country, and then you go to the Chisos Basins and you have this nice mountains and you hike the window trail and all of a sudden you're looking down on the Rio Grande and see Mexico in the distance and it's just everything is just so amazing it's so vast and you really feel like you've gotten away from it all. As soon as we enter the park almost on cue a roadrunner dashes across the road we make a quick stop at the Panther Springs Visitor Center to get our bearings and check on the latest weather forecast. It's going to be nice weather in the next few days, right? Oh, I hope so, yeah. yeah. Let's see what they're predicting for us here. It's a beautiful day right now. Oh, well, tomorrow I'm partly cloudy, but highs in the lower 70s. <laughs> yeah, so it looks pretty nice. Oh, maybe some rain in the extended forecast, but I'm sure that will become a smaller and smaller percentage chance as the days go on. We settle into Chizos Mountain Lodge cabin number 100, which I booked only about four weeks prior to the trip. It's an agreeable structure that sits apart from other park buildings. An inviting patio extends the width of the cabin, and we catch sight of a yellow-bellied sapsucker pecking away on a nearby alligator juniper. We head out for a late afternoon two-mile hike on the Chisos Basin Loop Trail. We want to time our finish to coincide with sunset behind the window. That's the V-shaped opening in the mountains in the western horizon and the park's signature landmark. Along the trail, we get an introduction to one of the park's signature birds, the vivid blue Mexican jay, also known as the gray-breasted jay. Its bright blue head and feathers pop out against the backdrop of Mexican pinon pines and yucca plants. It's so quiet on the trail, the chirp of the jay pops out as well. So we're looking at a Mexican jay. Here comes his partner. They're beautiful. I've never seen these birds before. One big reason we came to Big Bend was to witness the peak of the Geminids meteor shower. Big Bend is an international dark sky park, and efforts to expand its vast and dark overhead footprint even further are underway through a collaboration with the McDonald Observatory, the Davis Mountains and Big Bend Ranch State Parks, and partners in protected areas of Mexico. So here we are. It seems like it's the middle of the night, right? And it's nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary, we, we got a bunch of stars that we're looking at now, right? It's beautiful. The moon is quite bright, but I'm looking forward to when it sets. It's gonna set around 2 a.m. And we are determined, I am determined, to be up for that. 
just a short while ago we left the restaurant and came out onto the patio at the uh, Chisos Basin Lodge restaurant and I immediately saw two shooting stars and then when we got back to our little cabin Mary you saw one right yes so we're pretty excited because it's still very early right because we know the moon is overpowering our vision at this point and already I'm seeing more stars than I can see in my backyard in San Antonio absolutely it's a it's an amazing sky even with the moon being as bright as it is it's an amazing sky so the very first bright light we saw in the sky turned out to be Neptune it's about 6 30 yeah it was pretty early it was early it was early and so then the second brightest star we saw was Saturn was Jupiter I mean Jupiter right we didn't see Saturn it was too low Saturn's too low we could <gasps> oh my god that was just like a streak of light right above our heads extremely bright that's one of the brightest ones I've ever seen and it lasted yeah it was really bright at least two seconds Wow. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm just hoping I can keep my travel companion awake till 2 (laughs) a.m. If I'm not awake, you just have to wake me so I could drive you to a darker spot. She might go, well, I've seen enough. It's a pretty dark spot, though. We really got a great spot here. Right. I mean, our cabin, it's kind of, it's a standalone cabin. None of the others are near us. She says mountains are just surrounding us. It's quite spectacular. Look at behind us. You can see Orion's belt right above. Oh, did you see that? I missed it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was just like the other one. I've never seen so them exciting. be bright for so long. I've seen many shooting stars, but these are re- really bright and hold their brightness for quite a while before they burn out from our vision and just think five hours from now (laughs) i can hardly stand hardly stand it (laughs) so just like we planned it's two o'clock in the morning and we came out to take a look hoping that the moon would have set by now it hasn't but i've seen three meteors so far are your eyes open yes There's one. There one. Did you see that? Yeah. Oh, I just saw one drop, two drop over there. Sort of to the left of the Big Dipper, they just came straight down, almost side by side. Yeah, there's not another sound in the park. There are no cars. It's just completely dark, completely quiet, except for a big bright moon. And a few billion stars. Ooh. That was a good one over there. Oh, I missed it. Oop, another one straight ahead. Right across the Orion. We have a couple of beach chairs that are, you know, in a fully reclined mode. So we can look up at the sky without craning our necks too much. And we're fully bundled up. I thought that would be a lot colder, but it's not bad. Mm -mm. It's very nice. Do you see that? Yeah. You do have planets out. Venus is over here, a really bright one. 
Big Ben's ranger programs offer novice stargazers like us a chance to learn more about the skies above. While we take turns taking peeks at the moon through a powerful telescope, our interpretive ranger explains why we should care about dark skies. I just like to talk about why that why animals care about night, right? So Big Bend is known for its extreme diversity. Really why we're a national park is that this, this area is a really good representation of the Chihuahuan Desert, you know, this huge diversity of plants and animals. Um, we have the most species of birds of any national park in the country, over 450, the most species of cacti of any park in the country, the most species of bats, which I cannot name them all, but we have them. <laughs> And weirdly, I, I believe most species of ants as well. But just so huge amounts of biodiversity, also really high numbers of butterflies. Um, so you get all of these animals here and plants in some cases that usually aren't anywhere else in the country. We're kind of on the northern end of the range for a lot of species, the southern end of the range for other species, and then kind of the same thing from east-west. So they all meet here species that don't necessarily interact in a lot of other places, they all mix together right here. So wildlife here is a really big deal, and plant life. And as perhaps you know, many animals in a desert are nocturnal. So night is really important to them. That doesn't mean you won't see them out during the day. You know, they just tend to be better at doing things at night, a little bit more adapted for night. I always like to bring up owls. So we have multiple species of owls here. I've actually been hearing a great horned like around our offices here recently. If you hear that really classic, just like hoo-hoo call, <laughs> that's typically a great horned owl. Um, they are nocturnal and they're gonna sit really quiet and still somewhere, just like on the corner of a building, a branch, and wait for a small mammal to run by and then swoop down and grab their meal. But if you're that small mammal and you see a big illuminated or shadow pair of wings coming at you, you're going to run in your burrow really fast, right? <laughs> so the owls, again, are just better at hunting when they can do it under the cover of darkness. They also are super quiet. Their feathers are shaped differently than a lot of other birds. Mm -hmm. So they don't make a lot of like ruffling in the wind noises. So they need that stealth. They also have a circadian rhythm, just like we do. So I'm sure a lot of us at least kind of know that's like our natural clock, right? It tells us when to feel more alert, when to feel more asleep or sleepy. Um, for humans it works so that a certain level of darkness falls all around us and our brain starts getting the chemical signal to get sleepy, starts making melatonin. Owls do the exact opposite. So darkness sets around them and their brain gets the chemical signal to wake up. And that's how a lot of nocturnal animals work. They wake up, they go about all the things they need to do, teaching their young how to do things, hunting, building the nest, they do that under the cover of dark. So if we start lighting up the night, you know, with street lights, billboards that are on all night, and we make night look like day, we really disrupt this natural cycle. And there's actually been a lot of studies, places where owls have lived for a long time. If you come in and develop something and leave the lights on all night, the owls will leave and they will not come back even if the lights are taken out. So. We're trying to protect um, that part of their lives out here. In addition to dark skies and night predators, Big Bend has human history to acknowledge as well. Early miners, ranchers, farmers, and others tried at different points in time to carve a living out of this unforgiving desert landscape. On our way to hike the impressive Santa Elena Canyon Trail, we check out the Castellon Historic Area of the Park, 
once trod upon by indigenous peoples, Mexican ranchers and farmers, and later by Anglo-American settlers. According to park officials, nearly 70% of visitors are Texas residents. But we meet Don Bishop and Kathy Bradshaw from Perrysburg, Ohio, on their third visit to the park, taking a lunch break in Castellon. Well, so tell me about your visit to the park. When did you get here? How long are you going to stay here? And is it your first time here? We got here on December 8th, and we're staying for eight nights in the Chizos Mountain Lodge. That's where we're staying. Wonderful place to stay. So what you been doing since you got here? A lot of it has been uh, driving around. We've done a limited amount of hiking since we're rather sedentary people. Uh, we don't, we're not prepared to hike a lot. But we hiked a bit in Santa Elena Canyon. What'd you uh, think? That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. I recommend getting there early in the morning, which we didn't do because we get up late. <laughs> so it's, so early morning, is that because of the heat or the people factor? The sunlight. Sunlight. I think the angle of the sun would make the, the canyon more attractive in the morning. But it's fascinating at any time. We had a ranger-guided tour of, of dugout wells, and that was fascinating. He explained the, the human history of Big Bend, as well as the geologic history, and uh, explained the vegetation. Really recommend any of the ranger-guided walks. And if you do take a ranger-guided walk, or are even off on your own trek, you might start wondering how people survived in such a harsh landscape. Interpretive ranger Pat Driscoll is an expert in that area. Mary and I sit in on his ranger talk about desert aliments, wares, and remedies that provided sustenance for indigenous people and later settlers. So people have been living in Big Bend for at least about 12,000 years as far as we can tell, right? Um, we had different groups of ancestral Puebloans, and then more recently, uh, probably uh, ones that people are more familiar with, uh, we had Mescalero Apache, and we also had the Comanche here too, right? Now, if this place was truly desolate, how could people live here? Thing is, the plant life here is actually conducive to living, if you know what you're doing, right? So we got the prickly pear cactus. This little red part here, uh, you know, the fruit of it, really, really sweet. It can be used for things like jams, candies, different other things. You guys think you guys can eat the pad? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, right? If you go to a grocery store anywhere in like Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, you'll see them sold as uh, nopales or uh, nopalitos. You can eat them fresh. You can eat them like uh, you can eat them pickled. You can eat them stewed, roasted, all kinds of great things, right? Now I got a question. You guys want to try it? Okay, so I'll be going around. Remember I said if you don't want me to do it, just say no, thank you, right? Or <laughs> go away, Ranger Pat. Right? Do you folks want to try it? Sure. What you're gonna do is you're gonna grab a toothpick and you're gonna pop one of those. There's not many uh, ranger programs that offer you snacks. I like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very sensory oriented. I like to, otherwise if you just do slides or talk, sometimes people start nodding off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> tastes like cactus. Tastes green, like green. cactus? <laughs> if you don't know what a cactus tastes like, uh, if I had to describe it, I always thought like if you mix like uh, kind of like a bell pepper with cucumber. cucumber. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's why. It's got that's a green a, bean vibe that's, too. That's the way I would describe it. Now, besides cactus, what kind of other plants do you think you see here at Big Bend? Agave, Okay, yeah, I, I, I've heard two of them, right? So here, here it is. You mentioned agave, right? Here, this is uh, endemic to the park. This is the lechuguilla agave. 
There are multiple different types of agave. Uh, probably the most famous or, or most well-known is like the Havard agave, the, like the century plant. That's the one that has that big, huge uh, central stalk. That plant actually doesn't, they call it a century plant because, you know, like uh, just like, you know, live sale, like, oh, it lives for 100 years. Typically, they only live about 33 years. Once you see that stock go up, though, that means that the plant's actually going to die. It'll, it'll die within the year after that. It uses all its nutrients to produce that. Um, you also got like the blue agave, um, pretty famous. Uh, of course, anybody drinks tequila, right? Okay, so no, we're not doing this. <laughs> Don't hold back. We have children here, <laughs> and I'm a federal employee. No one gets fired, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, like, uh, so yeah, you got you got the blue agave, you got the lechuga agave. There's there's multiple types, right? But um, you know, of course. Uh, Besides producing spirits, uh, you can actually eat uh, por portions of the agave too. When it shoots up that stalk, the flowers it produces, you can eat. Um, the heart of the agave, uh, you can actually eat as well. Strangely enough, though, if you eat it raw, it's poisonous and can kill you. If if you roast it, though, it's it's perfectly fine to eat. So I don't know who figured this out. Somebody like ate the raw one and almost died. And then another guy said, like, no, you know what? I'm going to try again, but I'm going to roast it this time. <laughs> but that actually, it actually works, right? Yeah. Of course, these days, it's unlawful to collect or disturb plants and other park resources. Still, we find it very interesting to learn about how they, at one time, were incredibly useful. Pat, I want to ask you about your presentation. It was really interesting. And you really have a passion for this topic. So tell me how you got interested in um, presenting information about, you know, what you can eat and things you can make from things you find in the desert. Well, I'm a park ranger, and uh, I like to uh, learn by, you know, doing. So I always, uh, before I worked here, I worked at Pipe Spring National Monument and I worked as an education uh, technician. And so working with children, it's like you have to keep people's attention and I found out uh, if they're using their senses they're more likely to uh, absorb the information that you're telling them and of course who doesn't enjoy eating and you know enjoying things like that so that's that's kind of why, why I started focusing on on that with the plants because it's like oh they have practical uses too that's the other thing if people can relate to what you're talking about from a practical sense they're more likely to absorb information than if you give them abstract ideas or things that you know aren't in their everyday life definitely and so um do you do a lot of research in this area? I hope I did. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I, I used to work at Guadalupe Mountains National Park. So uh, from there, I haven't worked there in several years. So I, I don't necessarily know the setup now. But uh, you, you, the very Mescalero Apache um, were very close to the area, and they would actually frequent the park for their own, you know, various um, purposes for, you know, passing on their knowledge to their youth and things like that. And so we kind of uh, absorbed some of that knowledge too, just, you know, just like, you know, osmosis process kind of or something like that, yeah. Yeah, because you kind of look at the desert and you think, oh, how would anybody survive in this mm -hmm. landscape? <laughs> it's just one of those things, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hidden treasure, but it's like out in the open. It's just people don't realize it's there. And then... Um, like like any sort of knowledge set, it, once you know how to do something, it seems easier, right? Like you know, like like driving a car or anything like that. It, it's just that first. Once somebody shows you the knowledge, the knowledge is there, and then that can be passed on. And then, of course, that's how these people survive. They pass their knowledge on to, you know, their children and and so on. And even different groups, of, you know, a lot of this knowledge got passed on to different settlers from Mexico, and then later on the United States and things like that. But it originated with like the native peoples of the area, things like that. It follows that the more you learn about the plant life in the park, the more types of plants you start noticing. 
One that catches our eye throughout the park and especially along the Borough Spring Trail is the purplish prickly pear with its long sharp spines and intense purplish pink hue. It's supposedly a variety of cactus found only here in Brewster County, Texas. Lots of cane choya cactus here too. We even see a well-constructed cactus wren nest tucked in among a choya's spindly arms. Plant life notwithstanding, the panoramic views on the park trails are incredible. We are surrounded by a stunning vista of the upper pine and juniper canyons of the Chisos Mountains as we climb to the 6,800-foot apex of the Lost Mine Trail. We spy acorn woodpeckers and black-crested titmice flitting among the branches and common blackhawks soaring above the trees. Up here it was a steady climb. Virtually the whole way. The whole way, but a really uh, well done trail. Not very technical. But it's pretty, it's just sharp, jaggedy peaks. Fall uh, colors, fall the last colors. week of fall. Lots of green, lots of green shrubbery um, all throughout uh, the slopes of the mountains. And now that we're higher, we're starting to see that chartreuse color lichen on some of the rock. Very vibrant. Really pretty. And we really haven't passed that many people on the trail. It's mid-December, so um, I would say maybe 15 or yeah. 15 or so people either coming or going. The loudest thing on the trail was you when we saw the brown tarantula. <laughs> yeah, uh, the human shriek of fear. I when... thought for sure I'd get to see a bear. <laughs> <laughs> but all bets are off when a tarantula crosses the trail. What can I say? I'm terrified of spiders and I knew, I know they're out here. I know tarantulas are out here in large numbers, but, um, and I knew I was going to see one. I didn't want to see one, but, huh. He did take his time crossing the trail. <laughs> he did. High up on the windy peak of the Lost Mine Trail, hoping not to see any more tarantulas, I can truly appreciate how vast this park is. There's so much to see, so much exploring yet to do. But now I realize that this park is not as far from home as I always thought. Well, I'm in the car with Mary and we have left the park and we have actually um, crossed into the city limits of San Antonio. We're back to the world of overpasses and traffic and car dealerships and restaurants and it's kind of a shock, but uh, we made it back and uh, Mary, um, how long would you say we've been on the road this time? Uh, probably about eight hours with our stop for lunch and marathon and a couple other stops to stretch and get gas and something to drink for about eight hours. Well, what would you say about the highlights of the trip? What were your favorite moments? Uh, I really enjoyed the dark skies and watching the meteor shower the first night or early morning and the trail that we did yesterday, the Lost Mine Trail, uh, the surprise for me was how it was at the top of it we were just along the ridge up there and the views that we got in every direction because uh, because we were on a ridge so we could see 
out in every different direction. We could see Mexico in front of us and then other parts, far-reaching parts of the park from the top. It was just absolutely spectacular. You know, Big Ben just never disappoints. You forget the reward after making that long drive out there, how amazing it really is. So another great trip under our belts uh, for the traveler. This is Lynn Riddick. And Mary Minster. And we hope you have great travels too. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts like certificates, money markets, and even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickel and dimed every time they make a transaction. That is the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. Send your bank up, 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 and away and experience the membership difference with Interior Federal Credit Union. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. It certainly sounds like Linda Mary had a great time down at Big Bend National Park. And certainly for those listening, I'm sure you want to add that park to your to-do list. Now, this past week, I was able to catch up with Charles Sams, the new director of the National Park Service, who is getting his bearings in Washington, D.C. with the agency. Understandably, as he's being briefed on a multitude of issues across the park system, the conversation didn't dig down too deeply into many of the issues he found waiting for him. His staff thought it was too early to conduct a podcast to bring to you, but among the things Director Sams told me was that he welcomes the challenge of being the Park Service Director because of his background in conservation work and as an American Indian. There was this false premise, he told me, that land and people are divided into two categories, when in reality they are symbiotic. The new director said there's a symbiotic relationship 
that is extremely important in understanding how to protect and preserve public lands and their resources for future generations. Appreciating that his own cultural upbringing had come to play throughout his career in conservation and natural resource work, Sams told me that he thought he could rely on those skill sets to benefit the United States and the American people as Park Service Director. While the COVID pandemic is keeping Sams from heading out to meet his far-flung staff at this time, he says he looks forward to having discussions with employees and managers concerning some of the issues he needs to confront, such as poor housing, pay levels, and harassment issues across the park system. On the issue of overcrowding in some parks, Sam says he is discussing that problem with the Park Service's Leadership Council of Superintendents and Regional Directors and plans to discuss it with gateway community leaders and tourism agencies to see how best to address crowding on a park-by-park basis. While the Great American Outdoors Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act are funneling billions of dollars into the national park system, they are not providing much-needed dollars for personnel needs, such as salary improvements and better housing. The Build Back Better legislation did contain hundreds of millions of dollars for personnel, but that measure has been sidetracked by U.S. Senator Joe Manchin's opposition to it in its current form. In light of that, Sams has been talking to members of Congress to explore ways to have that money provided in some form. And he told me that he and his staff are looking internally to see whether existing Park Service funds might be redirected to help personnel. Director Sams no doubt has to feel like he's drinking out of a fire hose with all the issues he is confronted with. How much help he'll get from the administration should be revealed shortly when President Biden submits his budget request to Congress. While Congress typically ignores these presidential requests, it should reveal the administration's desires for improving the national park system. Sams wouldn't reveal any details of what that request might include, saying only that it's an ongoing discussion. It was a short conversation I had with the new director, maybe 15 minutes, but we're looking forward to revisiting down the road when his feet are more soundly grounded at the Park Service to discuss some of these issues in more depth. One book I suggested he look at was American Covenant, written by two former Park Service scientists, Michael Sukup and Gary Macklis. In it, the two said that few employees in the Park Service are trained to think about or cope with the innate difficulty of saving complex natural systems in human-dominated landscapes, and too little time is spent preparing the service for the challenges of the future. In many ways, the agency feels like a comfortable small family on a picnic that hasn't prepared for the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. In case you missed it, check out Lynn Riddick's interview with Big Ben's Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services, Tom Vandenberg, in our podcast number 151, found wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're in a new year, but we're definitely not starting off with a clean slate of stories to cover across the national park system. In the weeks and months ahead, we'll be watching to see whether a commercial spaceport just a few miles west of Cumberland Island National Seashore in Georgia succeeds in gaining the necessary approval to launch rockets over the seashore. We'll also be tracking efforts to drill for oil beneath Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida and delving into the thorny and always controversial issue of air tours over the parks. And the list goes on from there. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. 
the composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.